Good morning. Yes, it is spring, but the weather this week... Ray might have said it best. I'm sick of it all. Sick of winter and early spring. I just want summer! I just want summer! Feeling your pain, brother. But while we might be in galoshes swaddled in scarves, the birdies, they are just embracing it. Here's Derek with Terry Flanagan on Mooney Goes Wild. Teacher, teacher, teacher. That's what the great That's tit the one. sings. Yeah, yes. yeah. Exactly. Parents. And the one thing about the great tit, it always reminds me that spring is on the way because I heard it there in your garden and I heard it at the end of that report and I heard it earlier on during the week when I was up the canal. You might see lots of birds during the winter time. You might hear the sparrows and you might hear the starlings and that. But to me, when does spring start? I know some people say it's when they see the first daffodil or when they see the first snowdrop. But to me, it's when you hear that call from the great hit. And it's a very simple little call. Teacher, teacher, teacher. And to me, that is the real start of spring. And I heard it over the weekend. So there. And on Monday afternoon, a Mooney Goes Wild special, a live programme with Birdwatch Ireland and the inaugural Great Big Garden Birdwatch. 50 goldfinch, 20 various tits, 15 sparrow, 5 blackbird, 4 long-tailed tits, 2 green finches and a few wrens. Beat that. And then, this report from Nicky Coughlin of RTE Junior, with the Kenny family who are based in Cabra in Dublin 7. I like watching birds, just because they're really nice to watch. What this is, is a list of all the most common good in birds in Ireland. And did you know, there's a difference between a female blackbird and a male blackbird. Usually people see the male blackbirds, the fully black ones. But when you see the female blackbirds, they have brown with stripes of black. Chaffinches have a very big difference between males and females. Of course, the female is more dull and doesn't have as much colour. Why do you think the male birds are the ones that tend to have brighter colours? What do you think? Because they want to attract girls. Just in time for Valentine's Day. From Mooney Goes Wild. And while it might not necessarily feel like it this week, the spring is here and on Culture File from Altmount Gardens in Tolo County, Carlo, February, which is Snowdrop Month. Beloved of Galanthophiles. How's that for a word? Here is head gardener Paul White. Now, as we come into the garden, this is what we, is known as the nun's walk. And the most interesting thing about this is the beech trees. And when you, when you look under the beech trees, you, this is where we have our swathes of Galanthus navalis, which is the common snowdrop. I suppose what you're looking at is a flower of three outer petals and three inner petals. Um, now they have a more scientific name but for most people that's what you're looking at and you're looking at a pedicel which holds the flower and I suppose what you're looking at now is like that when you look at the common snowdrop that's kind of the standard of what everybody refers back to so when you see all these new varieties they kind of it's variations of this simple flower 
that have people excited and that's where you know people really go hunting for them and these people are galantophiles and they know everything there is to know about snowdrops and they hunt for all these special markings like on the inner mark in the inner petals like on the common snowdrop there's a simple green but these can be x's they can be heart shaped they can be yellow and the, the yellow snowdrops which are kind of the more kind of in vogue at the moment where you've got the yellow ovary and the yellow markings and they're kind of much desired now at the moment. And he gave us a little bit of the history behind the newer varieties of snowdrop. So like when you think about the common snowdrop, you know, it, it's been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then suddenly a lot of Irish people went off through the Crimea to fight that war. But over there, they found a different snowdrop called uh, Galantis plicatus. And that snowdrop was brought back to Ireland and to England and to other places. It's the crossing of that common snowdrop and the placata snowdrop that gave rise to variations. So back in the 1850s, late 1850s, a lot of gardeners were kind of looking, oh, there's a seedling and it's very different. And that's kind of where the rise of the hunt for different snowdrops came from. And ever since then, it's been uh, exploded. Like, like we have here maybe 150, 200 different varieties, which is an awful lot, but actually, in the bigger universe of snowdrops, there's nearly two and a half thousand snowdrops. 20 years ago, you could identify a snowdrop and you could kind of figure out what its parentage and lineage is. But now it's just gone too, almost too much. But it's a good thing, you know, like, you know, because everybody's excited by new stuff. Dedicated is the word. Um, like on a cold, like it's mild enough now and has been mild last year, but on a cold February day, to go out there and get on your hands and knees on a frosty morning and to really examine your snowdrops. Yeah, it takes a lot of dedication. Very beautiful indeed from Culturefile for all you galanthophiles out there. Isn't nature just amazing? But do we love it enough to make changes? Maybe even a few sacrifices? Well, no sooner have we started the year than, with a sickening sense of déjà vu, we're breaking records again. Here's Carlos Buentempo, director of the Copernicus Climate Change Service with Anya on Morning Ireland. And you can almost guess what's coming next. Tell me about January being the warmest on record. Yes, January 2024 was the warmest January on record at a global level, uh, with an average temperature in our data set of 13.14 degrees Celsius, which is 0.7 uh, degrees above the 1991 to 2020 average for January, and uh, 0.12 above the previous uh, warmest January, which is 2020. So indeed, another month that adds to the long streak of months that started back in June 2023 and has been in uninterrupted since of um, months mm-hmm. that are their moment in time where they were missed on record. From Morning Ireland. And in Dublin this week, plans to change the traffic flow with a ban on private cars crossing through the city centre, particularly along the Quays. Traffic instead will be rerouted, all with the aim of freeing up the city centre for walking, cycling and public transport. We're the second most congested city in the world. Congestion costs the city about €300 million 
in 2022. Air quality levels are pretty poor in the city centre and we also need to get space to facilitate bus connects. That's Brian Caulfield, Professor of Transportation at Trinity College on Drive Time. And he broadly welcomed the plans, although he did express reservations as to whether it will be achieved by its aim of August. Now, this plan was first mooted way back in September and Cormac put this to him. People were texting as well to say, you know, this is great if you have an underground or a tube system like they have in New York or London. But we, this is this is what people were saying to us at the time, we don't have a reliable or flexible enough or um, extensive enough public service, uh, public transport system uh, to make this happen. Now, I don't know if that's um, a good enough reason or if that's legitimate as a reason. Um. A big part of this plan is to enable that public transport system to be put in place and it's a part of Bus Connect's um, priority. And that's what this plan will enable is that buses will be able to get in and through the city quicker so that you've got a bus that's got maybe 100 people on it isn't being delayed by traffic. That's the 60% of it that's just travelling through the city. I could think of, you know, a large number of examples of cities that have brought this in and they've kept it. I can't really think of many cities that have done this type of um reorganisation of traffic and then Mm -hmm. got rid of it. However, on Morning Ireland, not everyone was in favour of these plans. Anya spoke to independent councillor Neil Ring. It's just another amazing example, Anya, of this lack of joined up thinking within Dublin City Council and in this whole transport uh, policy that we have. Like with the NTA, the NRA, Dublin bus, nobody seems to be talking to another. Dublin City Council seems to be hell-bent on getting private motorists out of the city. Nobody's looking at what's that doing to the businesses in the city. And this, instead of going to the city centre, you have to go... you, you can't go through, you can only go to. In, in other words, if you want to go to, for example, a constituent of mine who wants to bring its child over to the new hospital in James Street, isn't allowed to go through the city centre. It's just, it's it's really an example of nobody thinking. And I know, I know four-fifths of people are saying, this is wonderful. That's apple pie and motherhood. We'd all love to be out there in a, in a lovely plaza, cycling around, walking around. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. The reality is motorists nobody gets into a car i didn't get into my car this morning willingly and say i really want to use my car to get into work i just had to do that Mm -hmm. it's it's lashing rain i couldn't use my bike it's it's there's no public transport directly to where i work so uh, unless we have the facilities we're putting literally the cart before the horse in terms of transport but what of shops in the city centre? Well, later with Colm, Richard Guiney, CEO of Dublin Town, which represents businesses in the city, gave his view. I think what we have to do is deal in, in the facts of the matter. Um, we know that this plan is going to happen um, and I think we therefore have an obligation to make it work um, as best we can. Look, in terms of the the you know the access points, 80% of the people who come to the city use a form of sustainable transport to access the city. Uh, the footfall last year was at 88% of the, the 2019 levels um, and that's largely due to work from home. Um, you know, Monday to Friday, Pete, the, the footfall is down 10 to 15 percent, um, and that is a reality that we're just going to have to deal with. I think, in terms of the plans, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms of the, the detail of the plan. Um, we all understand the need to restrict the, the through traffic, but what we need to do, um, we, we've researched with the public and we're looking at you know one in five that actually are aware of elements of the plan. So, there's clearly a lot more communication that needs to be done there. 
and those plans are set for August. But on Liveline, callers not impressed at all. It was four wheels all the way for many of them. And it must be said, Joe Duffy. How are you, Joe? Yeah. Just this, I, I just think it's it's completely wrong to be blocking out our city of people being able to drive through. You know, I know it's congested at times, but uh, they could think a little bit better than completely wiping it out. You know, putting in these corridors for, for public transport. And the public transport system is not fantastic at all. And I ask the question, whose city is it? Like, who are the people? Is this a city for tourists now to come and visit without regard to Dubliners and people from the rest of Ireland? People from the whole of Ireland have an interest in Dublin City, not just the 82%, whoever they are, who said this was all okay. So cycling and walking, John, will be the mainstream transport in a city of 1.5 million people. That's it, Joe. And we'll all go down to Tesco and Lidl on our bikes and we'll be able to bring our shopping home and everything else. Like, there's day-to-day activities that people have to carry out. It can't all be done by walking or cycling. From Thursday's live line. However, with Clare yesterday on the gathering, a different view. Here is political correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail, Ashling Maloney. She is on her bike. Most places in Dublin are incredibly accessible by bike. It's not a big city. Um, it's also not an incredibly hilly city. The only thing that kind of would make me re- um, go back or what would you say scare me off cycling is actually cars. So, um, yeah. and actually when people, I know Liveline was quite exercised yesterday with people saying, oh, Ireland's rainy and all this. I've only had to not cycle a handful of times because of the rain. And actually what I should just do is get a bloody pair of uh, wet pants. That's what I should get. (laughs) So like I'm cycling more. I've cycled in my new job for the last eight or nine months constantly and not had any issues. Now, I'm worried about an issue with the car. And that is the main thing that stops people. We all need to toughen up a little bit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think as well we're in a period of transition. Like we're in a period where we're trying to make these changes. And I think you're always going to have change is scary, change is new. And people... People are used to their ways. Um, And I'd also make the point, what did we do like 60, 70 years ago when no one, car use wasn't, wasn't a big thing? Everyone cycled. Meanwhile, if you're in Paris and have an SUV, prepare to pay for your heft. With Barry Lenehan on Monday's Drive Time, Geraldine Herbert, motoring editor with the Sunday Independent. So these are new parking tariffs that are expected to come into force in September. And essentially it means that a cost of €18 an hour in the centre of Paris and €12 an hour in the rest of the city for on-street parking will apply to cars weighing more than 1.6 tonnes if they're petrol, diesel or hybrid or more than 2 tonnes if they're electric vehicles. Now, people living or working in Paris, taxi drivers, tradespeople, health workers and people with disabilities are exempt from this new, um, new parking fees. Sharp intake of breath for all you SUV drivers out there. Back in a bit. Welcome back. This was how Oliver kicked off Wednesday's programme. And we're focusing on drugs and especially cocaine this morning. It's the drug that's become as normal and regular as a pint or a shot across uh, in a pub in Irish society. It's urban and rural. It's become cheap. It's become accessible. And it is the source of all sorts of problems, not least addiction, of course, and uh, drug debt, uh, random street violence in our villages, towns and cities. And it's feeding gangland crime. It's also killing people. There isn't hardly a crossroads in the country that's uh, free of the curse. And we need to keep talking about it. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to hear from you. Oh, my dad, straight in. No messing. 
Now on the line, initially to talk about the importance of the measles vaccine, Robbie Lawler. But as a young person, well, best to get your money's worth from the guests. Because you're a young fella who's around town, and we're talking about drugs today and, and the, the social acceptance of it around the place. What's your experience uh, in nightclubs around Dublin, around the country, uh, when it comes to drug taking? Have you seen a change in recent years? Ah, uh, listen, drugs are everywhere. There's not a night out I don't see drugs. My friends do drugs. I've done drugs sometimes. Look, there's... There's many different types of drugs that's out there, different scenes, right? So there's the party scene, so there are people who do cocaine, they do pills, ecstasy, um, uh, MDMA. And then you have my friends who probably engage in chem sex, which are different kinds of sex, like G or meth or meth to enhance, um, to enhance their sexual experience. Or then you have my more hippie contingent of friends who would probably take ayahuasca or magic mushrooms or plant medicine, as they call it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, there's not kind of um, an area of my life that I don't have some sort of friends uh, or, or people who I know who engage in drugs in some way. Uh, and mostly it's done recreationally, it's done fine, it's done safely. But sometimes I do have friends who have, who have had issues with cocaine. I have had friends who have had issues in the chem sex scene. So there definitely needs to be money put into harm reduction and for uh, services to help people who do find it difficult in these scenes. Now, also in studio, Oliver spoke to Dr Chris Luke, former consultant in emergency medicine. Could someone be just having the good effects of cocaine if they're using it only seldom? I think that's maybe what Robbie's alluding to when people talk about Oh, oh without a fun. doubt. And that's yeah. why, that's why, uh, that's the number one reason why it's so popular because, you know, uh, probably up to 80% of the time in, in occasional users, there isn't anything more than perhaps tiredness or a little bit of paranoia sometimes, uh, apart from the exhaustion afterwards. Uh, but in up to 20%, you, you do get uh, a, a, a Addictiveness, uh, 10 to 20% of repeat users uh, are said to develop a, a dependence or a compulsive pattern of use. Uh, and that means that if they stop taking the cocaine, uh, you know, night after night or week after the week, they, they can develop horrible withdrawal symptoms, uh, which uh, range from mood swings and irritability and cravings for the drugs to nightmares and feelings of uh, absolute exhaustion, which is famously known as the crash. Mm-hmm. They can also get vomiting or convulsions. And, and uh, you know, one of the things we, we don't talk enough about is the, is the very common thoughts of, of suicidality right. uh, in cocaine users. Also on the line, Luke Lachlan. He plays county football for Westmead and he was very open about his own cocaine addiction. When I started um, with coke first, you know, it was good fun. And as the older I got, I just heard the paranoia. Like, you know, I just caught that, that you said um, nobody ever liked the way someone changed when they started cocaine or they turned into a nicer person. Yeah. But like I would find, say, even if I was on a night out, maybe during, like if I was in the nightclub, I might be okay. But it, I could get back to a house party with some of my friends and I would just turn into an absolute paranoid wreck. Like I'd have to leave straight away. I think everyone was looking at me. And... But then the only the flip side of that is like in your head you think like Jesus I definitely need to stop this but then you're like I need more, right? Like there's a you know you think you need more <laughs> to make you feel better and you know like that's obviously where you can see there like when I'm sitting away from that like you know you have a problem but like just when you're in the middle of it you just can't stop. And he talked to Oliver about all kinds of addictions that he'd experienced. PlayStation as a kid, gambling, then alcohol and finally coke. I'm 
28 now just progressed and got worse and obviously the problems I had my own personal issues that I never dealt with from when I was young they obviously heighten and you know as you get older things get worse you know you start to care about people's opinions more you have more responsibility so everything everything gets more severe so like the paranoia gets more severe you're you know you're like right if I can just get this high I'll be okay but you're not thinking like that that's just nearly a subconscious thing you know like and you're like I'll go for a few pints I'll be grand and like every time I went for a few drinks I I had the intention of not you know going into self-destruct mode but like I always ended up with a bag or a couple of bags or it always ended up for a few days with me you know there was no I couldn't just go home for some reason it's one of the things not everyone is addicted to cocaine or alcohol but you know I made my own choices He's sober now but had this perspective to offer but I look back on it I think my addiction probably started from when I was young uh, like you know it's a lot of abandonment issues and you know fear of rejection trust issues and um, that's okay now like I can look back I'm happy with myself now but if um, people can recognise small bit when their kids or whatever are going through stuff like that maybe to get help for them or to have them try to talk about it even Westmead footballer Luke Lachlan with Oliver and with Ray the very charming Marty Pello he of wet 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 fame Oh, that smile. But he had had his issues with addiction also. So to make sense of your addiction then, because your sort of trauma, if you like, Uh, because they talk about trauma now, was fame, was it? Well, I I, I, I think that's too easy. Is it right? See, for me, I think it was the way, the the culture that I grew up with, you know, the big pub culture. uh, If I had an ice cream, I liked the way it made me feel. If I sang a song, I liked the way it made me feel. Right. I took a drug, I liked the way right, it made me right. feel. And and I think youth and arrogance thinks, as a heady combo, that you'll say, this will never happen to me. Mm. I'm no different from that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's it. And once you understand that, that's how I, that's how I was wired. I think I was always going to be like that. And, and but what, what you do is how you navigate it, and, that, and, how, and that's what makes how... It's not what defines you, it's how you navigate because, these yeah. things. And when you look back, say, at photographs or clips of, of Top of the Pops appearances or, uh-huh. or live things. Can you see, would you know by looking at it where you are in your addiction well, journey? Well, no. For me, it was all, you know, uh, that was maybe up to the last maybe five or ten years. Of my, I can honestly say it with my hand in my heart, you know, I always had a drink. You know, yeah, it was yes. always, it started with alcohol, you yeah. know, and it was always, like, yeah, I have a couple of pints. And then you suddenly realise that you've had a couple of pints, but it's been seven days you've had a couple ah, of pints. Right. And then you go, oh, well, hold on, I know, it's like five years. And then you think, oh, well, maybe that's something that... Is that a problem? Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly, you know. But there was a lot more to Marty Pello than just the drink. And we had what they call in the business a light bulb moment. I was just looking at all the hits that uh, Wet 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 uh, had over yeah. the years. And you were hits and uh, you have done musical theatre. Oh, yeah, yeah, Very yeah, successfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, come on. The, logical, like... the logical next step is Wet 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 the musical. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd be, I'd be lying if I hadn't been suggested, you know, and I yes. think, you know, some of these songs do lend themselves to, yeah. would lend themselves to that treatment, especially when you look at songs like Wishing I Was Lucky, which came out of, uh, we grew up in Clybank, which was famous for its shipbuilding, etc., and it was a very industrialised city, and when I left school, uh, the options available to me for apprenticeships and 
had all gone. We were no longer building those big ocean liners like the Queen Mary and the QE2. They'd all gone. And uh, we saw, through music, became our vocation in life. And uh, wishing I was lucky was that it's basically about our, our, our friends that were torn from our community and had to go to London and uh, to get work. And, and uh, it was breaking down our community. There you go. That's the first song. He goes down to London. Then he meets the, all the angel eyes. He meets, angel. Oh, he, I see. He, he meets angel eyes then. And uh, are you try to pitch, <laughs> you, you try to pitch to me here, innit? Ray, there's a bigger there's a bigger thing going here. Jesus, it's not a bad story. I'm going aye, aye, aye. Maybe you should write it, Ray. No, I, for I no money, obviously. I think most people in RT will steer clear of musicals <laughs> for quite some time. Ooh, too soon for Josh and Ray. On Sunday, Miss Eleni, a cracked tooth, and for Rebecca Hunter, clammy, clenched fists, fear. Open wide for the good dentist. This may pinch. That's it. I'm turning into my mother. I'm going to bite the dentist. That's what Mum did, if you'll believe it. This was years ago, and a different dentist. She was so terrified that she bit down hard on his finger. So hard she made him bleed, and he told her not to come back. Mum had needed many teeth pulled when she was young and in those days you were held down and there was no anaesthetic and ever since she had had a terror of dentists that her lifelong problem teeth had ingrained. That day, the day she bit the dentist, something strange happened to her. She wasn't the polite Tunbridge Wells comes to Belfast version of herself that I knew. She did something that was primitive and feral and wholly protective of herself. Something wild and violent. Do we all have that button somewhere buried in us? Hmm, kind of nervous for her. And it must be said, the dentist. Bite down. The dentist began to chip at the crown. Then the drill came out. A deep ache had developed in my jaw and I wondered, did Mum know she was going to bite the dentist right before she did? I complained about the ache and the dentist gave me a piece of black rubber to bite down on. The pain eased. He continued to drill and I bit away to my heart's content. We both waited for the crack. There was a crunching noise. His drill jumped and I could feel something sitting on my tongue. Something the suction tube quickly sucked away. I paid the receptionist £100 and went to sit in the bathroom. There was a smudge of blood on my chin and I felt a sudden, childlike need to cry. There was only one person I could call. Hey Mum, are you free to talk? That big chair from Rebecca Hunter on Sunday Miscellany. On Tuesday, the death was announced of former Taoiseach John Bruton. He was 76. He led Fine Gael from 1990 to the start of 2001 and was Taoiseach from 1994 to 97, leading the rainbow coalition of Fine Gael Labour and Democratic Left. Just after the news broke, former Justice Minister Nora Owen joined Column. She had served with John Bruton in that government. If you look back at John's career, I think he went in when he was like in his very early 20s into the doll, and then he became, you know, through a long career, ministers for, you know, finance, departments that have now changed their names, but industry and commerce and industry and energy. And he, he honed his political skills over a long number of years. And, um, but he, he was a man of his own way. He knew what he wanted to achieve. He set about achieving things that perhaps other people might have kind of let somebody else do. And he was always on the go. He, he never stopped thinking and 
designing and revising policy and getting himself moving on and I was so happy I became his deputy leader in 1993 and I was so happy for him that he achieved uh, becoming Taoiseach in 94. It was slightly unexpected because of the breakup of the government between Labour and Fianna Fáil and that was on and then it was off and then, uh, and then it was off fully. It looked as if it was going to last and then John became Taoiseach and I think that was the crowning glory I suppose of his career having spent so long in the in the in the doll and um, I was very honoured to be his deputy leader during that time and close to the ups and downs that politics brings to everybody's life but John was was a, an extra special person who really thought about what was good for the country and what would, would be good for the children of the country I mean this was extraordinary he would come up in the morning early and say I thought about this last night or I thought about this yesterday and we've got to do this and we've got to do that and and he would set about to try and make improvements to our lives. Also joining column, former Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn, who paid tribute to his colleague and in particular his commitment to Europe. Um, he was a tremendous European, I think, more than anything else. I think uh, John, during the various referendums, whether he was in government or in opposition, uh, or fin- finished, he, he was always supportive. I mean, he was passionate about our role in Europe and you know, there were times when the European support in this country went down, but John was always one of the people who uh, was there to fight the cause. So he, uh, you know, he, he, he had an extraordinary career. I, I think he and I both shared about the same length in the doll, 34, 35 years. Um, but I think from from the time he started... Uh, through all his ministries, uh, he, he, you know, he, he was a genuinely hard-working person. He was one decent person to deal with. And although widely seen as socially conservative, on Morning Ireland, David McCullough noted John Bruton's role in the passing of the divorce referendum in 1995. He, he was very religious, very committed uh, to, to his religion. Um, in, in later life, he was very much uh, opposed to um, the, the, the abortion referendum. But on another important social issue on divorce, he was surprisingly liberal when he became leader of Fine Gael. He actually identified the introduction of divorce as one of his key aims, which wouldn't uh, really go down uh, with his image. And then during the campaign itself in 1995, uh, it was a a very, very close-run thing, and many observers thought that the Taoiseach's own intervention on the This Week programme on RT Radio the Sunday before the poll, Mm -hmm. a very powerful intervention which hit home with a lot of people, that that might just have swung... Uh, a number of votes, and considering that the referendum was passed by half of one percent, any votes that were swayed would have been would have been important. So, um, yes, he was conservative, and yes, he had these other countervailing uh, tendencies as well. John Bruton spent his life in politics, serving his constituents in Meath since his election as a TD in 1969 at the age of 22, until his retirement from domestic politics in 2004. Also on Morning Ireland, Moira Hannan brought us these voices from his home in Dunboyne. Very good politician and uh, nice man, very honourable man. It was a sad passing, you know. I think it's a very sad day no matter what someone's political orientation is. Um, he was good to Dunboyne, he was good to me, and he served the country very well and he served Europe very well. To have a Taoiseach to represent a small uh, town like Dunboyne is, was, a, was an honour. His policies would not be mine, but in, in as I would due respect, and, and to have somebody like a Taoiseach in, in this kind of area was fantastic. 
we've local councils and we've good TDs and but to have uh, T-Shock it's it's an honour it's an honour yeah and may, may he rest in peace because he was a decent man The late John Bruton remembered and there will be coverage of his state funeral on RT Radio throughout the day Back in a bit Welcome back with Miriam playwright Marina Carr Her new work is called Audrey or Sorrow I had a great time writing this play. I decided to take the brakes off and put the boot to the floor and go downhill, (laughs) hell or high water. And I didn't know what was going to happen next, um, which was very exciting for me because usually I have an idea Mm -hmm. of what's going to happen. But with this one, I didn't until I got to the very end. I didn't know what was going to happen. So everything was new for me writing it. And I think maybe for audiences coming along, well, I'm hoping they'll (laughs) indulge me and just go with it, go with the ride and it will reveal itself as you go along. And the play embraces the kinds of things that can't be pinned down, places that defy logic. It was kind of, um, I suppose, looking at, you know, how miraculous it all is here, you know. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. They say we came out of the sea and by the looks of things we'll be heading back in there pretty soon. Uh, We have to regrow the gills and the fins, you know. I was just thinking about that versus, uh, you know, the rational worldview. Mm. Um, And I suppose I got a bit tired of that. You know, we're kind of saturated and uh, hoodwinked and um, told, you know, that the world is a certain way, believe this, believe that. But before the Enlightenment, nobody considered us rational beings. So I decided to go with a little bit of irrationality and mystery in this one. And actually, reading interviews you've done before, you've said, you know, life is a mystery, a complete mystery, and maybe we should bow to that a bit more as we did long ago. Mm. Yeah, do you yeah. really believe that? Yeah, I do believe that. And, you know, you look at any of the, the big religions of the world, they're all around mystery. Mm. And, and they're all about the other world or the next world and the last world. And so the idea of, you know, that we live in, in the four dimensions, you know, time, space, width, length. Um, And then you think about time and, you know, Blake said time is merely a construct of the fallen world, meaning us and therefore to be treated with the greatest suspicion. So to play with time um, on stage is a wonderful, is wonderful freedom because there is a lot of playing with time in this. Yeah, absolutely. And she's all about the spirits, the energies, even ghosts. Do you believe in ghosts or is it more of a dramatic device to tell a story? I believe in them. I believe in them as presences, as emanations. I believe in them the way I believe in mystery. Um, things that can't be proven rationally, but things like like the imagination. Mm. Um, you know, ideas that come or images that come, like dreams, like things that happen. I think most people... Mm of a certain vintage will will say there are things that happened in their lives that for the life of them they cannot explain. Um, So yes, I do. I do believe. I believe them, but not like they, you know, with the the sheet over their head. Not Mm. like that. But the idea of of an energy, a presence, an essence and um, people who've gone, people you've loved who've gone before you Mm. um, and the idea of them trying to maybe, you know, bless you or honour you or look after you in some way. Mind you. Yeah, I believe all that kind of thing. I like that, actually. Yeah. Such an interesting perspective. Marina Carr with Miriam. Now, picture the scene. You're at your house. You realise you've forgotten your keys. You can see them, but you can't get in. You need the loo. I know. 
The top window's ajar. Hop, skip and a jump, it'll be grand. Sure, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah that wasn't the best idea I ever had. Like, <laughs> if I could do the whole day over again. <laughs> That's Lisa Rowland. You may not recognise her voice, but you might well know her in other ways. She and her bestie Lisa Parker were locked out and a video of them climbing in the window has made them a sensation. 30 million views and counting. We can't presume that everybody listening, Lisa, has seen the video, so you will have to describe it in detail for us. <laughs> Jesus, what you're trying to do to me. <laughs> I better get me holy water out. <laughs> well, I knew that it, I knew that if I could kind of get half over, I thought I don't know what I was thinking because there's nothing the other side but floor. Right. And a tiny bit of a window ledge. So I've in my head, I think I thought I was some kind of a gymnast that could do this <laughs> mad manoeuvre, flip of some sort, I don't know. And I wouldn't mind, it was about 11 o'clock in the day, stone cold sober. Yeah. I have no excuse for my stupidness, <laughs> there really isn't. So I I was worried the window was going to chop in half because I'm not a small woman, like, I'm six foot tall. Right. And I was thinking, this window is going to break and I'm going to be chopped in half. <laughs> Never in a million years did I think the bad boys were going to be making an appearance and trying to break the glass for me. I didn't think that was ever, ever going to happen to us or me or anyone, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Lisa, in fairness to you, right, and, and Lisa Parker was there, she was offering up her back, she was going to go down on all fours so you could climb on top of her. Uh, just to attempt it was heroic, I thought, because it's... it's, it's, a, it's a t- Stupid is the word, not heroic. There's no heroic in it. What are you on about, you magic? No, it was stupid from start to finish. But then, upside down and a wardrobe malfunction? Mm. Yeah. From the fight, the thighs, I was trapped on my thighs. Right. And I couldn't, but I had big long legs and I couldn't get them left, I couldn't get them right. <laughs> if you look at the video, I'm even trying to turn my toes into some kind of a claw, just to claw me way into the house. I don't know, I was trying it, I was desperate. <laughs> Uh, and then your lils, as you call them, the bad boys. Um, yeah. Well, gravi- yeah. well, gravity took over, didn't it? But gravity done me a favour because they don't look like that the right way up. I'm telling you, I'm getting, mess- I'm getting messages from Texas and everything telling me how great I look, and I really don't want to disappoint anybody, but they don't. That's the first time they've met each other in years, man. They lead totally separate lives, different postcodes. <laughs> With Brendan, death cleaning, a particularly ruthless decluttering. Not a bother to writer Anne Ingle. So everything I own is in one room. And that's a really freeing thing to is be it? Yeah. you know. Yeah. And I know that my, the rest of my children, my eight children, are delighted to know that they do not have to come and sort out a whole load of stuff when I'm gone because it's all sorted and taken care of. So can, can I ask you sort of practical terms? What what do you do with the stuff? I presume the first shedding was of stuff like furniture and all that kind of thing. Is it just all off to the charity shop without? Absolutely. Don't give it another thought. No? Yes, and and uh, like you give it away. Uh, people don't really want it. Uh, it's not easy to give away that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, I sold some. I did have one good three piece suite that I'd bought um, that was leather. I sold that um, to one of my children. 
but apparently, <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing at? Um, but um, I you wanted, you wanted to make them work for you. You wouldn't have just handed it over. No, no, no. Because no, the others would have got annoyed then and started yeah, like oh, yeah. that's eating into my inheritance there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, you have to be careful with. Did these you get a good price? I did. I was okay. delighted. And with Claire, cleaning of a different sort. We were talking about hotel rooms and how clean they really are a little earlier and your messages are coming in. My husband works in a five star hotel and will not use throws and cushions in any hotel. So that tells you something. Maraid has sent us this message, which makes my spine tingle. Maraid worked in a hotel in Germany in the 80s as a chambermaid. The woman I worked with wiped around the toilet and the wash basin with a cloth, which she then used to polish the drinking glasses in the bathroom. And Maraid says everything looked spotless. Do not use those glasses that they leave in the room because you know what goes on. No, we didn't. But now we do. On Arena, Bond, the world's best-selling string quartet. Of course they've been referred to as the Spice Guards of classical music and of course I did that earlier <laughs> on in the programme, I couldn't avoid. Well, they have sold five million albums, but now two of the Bonds have started a breakaway group, Furl, and they will be performing at this year's Spike Cello Festival. They are EOS Council and Gaye Westerhoff. They are writing music, but do not start them on a whispery vocal. Tell me a little bit about Woodland Creature. Well, that was kind of, in at the time, it started with an idea that was meant for someone else, a singer. Hmm. Um, and I was thinking about how a lot of singers these days, they sound like woodland creatures, like their vocals these days, they're all like, hey, so loud. <laughs> and it started off. A lot of singers that. really looking forward to working Some with you. Some singers, now. a lot of these modern singers, you know how they, you know, like, they sing so quietly, yeah. like I'm so quiet, like a woodland creature. <laughs> yeah, and um, that was the starting point, and then it just developed, and then I took it with Aos, and then we were playing, and it turned into something else. Right, it certainly did. But Let's I kept the title. <laughs> you kept the title and forgot about the singers, and that made it totally instrumental. Let's have a listen to a little bit of Woodland Creatures. gentle easing in to the rugby because after last Friday's trouncing of France and the Six Nations on Sunday is it Italy's turn with Des Donal Lenehan the verdict in six seconds or less please it's very difficult to see anything other than a, a good Irish win is there any other kind well that is it from this week's playback thank you for listening talk to you next week